Hello and welcome to the Sensi Lab Creative AI Podcast, Episode Three. My name is John McCormack. I'm the director of Sensi Lab, and joining me at the console today, uh, as ever, physicist and PhD researcher Nina Redchich. Hey, Nina. Hey. And we've got a, a new member of the team on board today, Sensi Lab app developer and deep learning expert Dilpreet Singh. Hey, Dilpreet, welcome. Hello. Thank you. Today's topic is. AI and emotion. So we're going to be talking about all the different kinds of emotion and how AI has come to try and understand human emotions in particular and make use of them. So emotion is kind of typically the domain of psychology, and that's where a lot of the research that informed early parts of AI came from, where uh, there were sort of two major models developed. One of these involved the use of discrete measures and the other continuous. So what do we mean by that? Well, discrete models include the basic emotional categories such as being happy, sad, surprised. And often in these models, you can only be in one of those states at a time. So you can't be both simultaneously surprised and sad, for example. With the continuous models, uh, they have two or more continuous dimensions. And a classic example of this is Russell's circumplex model of effect. And this generally has two measures, valence, which is basically a measure, measure of how pleasant or unpleasant something is, and arousal, which is a sort of level of activation or deactivation. So having got all the tech out of the way, let's talk a little bit more about actually what you can do with these models and how they're implemented in AI. So there's a whole branch of computing known as effective computing, or sometimes called artificial emotional intelligence, or even shortened to emotional AI or emotion AI. And the sort of modern branch of that was originated by a researcher, Rosalind Picard, who wrote a paper in 1995. Now, Nina, you know a little bit about this because this is mm. very close to your PhD topic. It's quite relevant, yes. Yeah. What was, what was that paper about and why was it so influential, that original paper on effective computing? So when she released that paper, it was she basically coined the term effective computing and she gave a lot of arguments for why we need to introduce emotion into kind of computational systems. One big reason was to actually like improve the interaction between humans and computers because, you know, obviously humans are like quite emotional. So we need robots or machines to understand that to some level to have like a more streamlined interaction. But on the other, on the other hand, there's a, a big kind of motivation is also the kind of idea of artificial intelligence and to have an artificial, like an intelligent um, machine, we need that machine to also like be equipped with emotion itself. Because without that, like we don't really consider humans to be intelligent without that emotion. So those are the two main arguments she gave. Yeah, right. So I guess it it kind of comes down to being two things: one, recognizing and understanding human emotion, and also when you're interacting with an AI, having it display an emotion that humans can understand or associate mm. with or even empathize with mm. maybe but also i think it goes deeper and it's not that they just express it but people have been trying to get machines to basically model emotion or like have emotion that's kind of a yeah. long-term goal but yeah it's definitely trying to actually like them to possess the emotion and have emotional reactions themselves so one of the other things that often comes up in these discussions is a thing called sentiment analysis. Dilpreet, what is sentiment analysis and is it relevant to effective computing? Uh, sentiment analysis is a way of determining, you know, whether what someone says, well, what the sentiment behind that is. Um, I mean, the, the example that comes to mind is targeting um, ads based on what people say in tweets. 
So there was there was a company that sort of monitored tweets from people mm. and depending on what their sentiment was, you know, what they were complaining about their morning routine, it would try and recommend a Starbucks, you know, so like trying to get whether people are sad in their tweets and sort of Mm. trying to target products based on that. So that's sentiment. So it's generally a, a sort of a binary thing, isn't it? It's either something is positive or, or negative. negative. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think this will kind of reoccur a bit in our discussion is that a lot of these techniques, I mean, we're, we're trying to look for applications in creative AI and we'll come, come to those in a minute, but a lot of these techniques seem to largely be focused on things like advertising or mm-hmm. getting people to perhaps do things that they might not have otherwise to persuade them to do things based on how they're feeling. Mm. Do you think there's a, a sort of subtext of something a little bit sinister about all that stuff, like preying on people? I mean, I guess advertising has always preyed on people's insecurities and desires about missing out or wanting something or being needing something that they don't really need. And is mm. this just making them more vulnerable by, by a machine understanding someone's emotion or not? What do you think? Mm. I'm not sure how dangerous it is at this point i mean depends how much you believe in in the emotion recognition software but i think the general goal i guess for big companies is just understanding their consumer more and this is like this is why big data is such a thing like trying to collect as much data as possible to have some kind of like broader picture to be able to predict what they're going to do better if we're looking at a sentence and trying to do keyword matching for instance but using that same sentence to sort of analyze sentiment i don't feel like it's Mm. too different you're trying to you're trying to gauge another you know metric from the same same source mm. even though maybe humans feel like emotional emotion is such a personal thing so we mm. feel that it's a bit more devious mm. gauging what if a tweet is positive or negative doesn't seem to be yeah well 90 percent of them are negative these days yeah. aren't they <laughs> <laughs> maybe not quite that much but yeah so so maybe let's just talk a bit about more about what's the state of the art is in effective computing research or in understanding emotions. So, you know, earlier I mentioned the sort of two major models, the continuous model, the Russell circumplex model of, of effect and the uh, discrete models, which just sort of basically in, in machine learning sense, just classify someone. So they look at someone's face or listen to their voice and say, okay, yep, this person is happy. This person is sad. This person is surprised. This person is angry and so on. Is that really where the state of the art is or is there is there something better than that? As far as I've seen, um, I mean, the state of the art machine learning wise isn't terrible. But basically, I think the field just kind of took off as soon as computer vision became really effective. That People found that they could try and do the same thing with facial expression. Um, but in terms of the state of uh, effective computing in terms of... Um, emotion theories and psychology, it's it's lagging quite far behind the way they're trying to model emotion. And I think a big part of that is because they're using the models that work best for the techniques that we have in machine learning. So basically, what can we see from like a picture and how can we use just like, you know, deep networks to classify between discrete emotions, right? Mm. Yeah, I think from a purely looking at an image and classifying point of view, Mm. I think machines... You know, they're trained on data that's created by humans classifying whether that person is looking mm. like they're angry or sad. So from that point of view, they're really good um, if mm. we're just purely looking at a photo and trying to classify it. But yeah, deeper than that, mm. are they actually understanding what's going on behind that? Yeah. Mm. Not. Well, there's the whole the whole idea of actually just looking at someone's face and being able to work out what emotion they're displaying is kind of flawed, flawed because... Yeah. 
Uh, you know, it's well known that a smile can mean a whole lot of different things. It doesn't necessarily mean you're happy. It could it could mean all sorts of other things. Mm. Um, and also that, I mean, one of the things, even though these models are usually sort of probabilistic, they generally come up with a top category. It's like you can only be fitting into that one category yeah. as well. Whereas, you know, everyone knows from their own experience that emotion is a very nuanced and personal thing in terms of exactly, you know, often you can't necessarily vocalize or or say I, I feel this way. It's a certain feeling that you you can't necessarily linguistically articulate. Mm. So And that's I mean that's actually why I was interested in effective computing in the first place was because to kind of help people to understand their emotions. If there was a way that machines could help on a personal level people to understand what they're feeling, like if you're giving away cues with facial expression or something and then you're getting some kind of insight that maybe you know just like another kind of therapeutic tool. Mm. Um, and coming from that angle, I think it's interesting, but obviously there's, I'm not sure how many people are researching that kind of stuff, but I thought there's definitely two kind of schools where one kind of falls under surveillance and one falls under like personal and therapeutic tools from the research that I've seen. Mm. So people might remember the, the very famous, one of the first AI psychologists, Eliza, which was mm. a very simple AI, it just used rule-based, um, but it, but people actually um, would tell things to the AI that they perhaps wouldn't tell to other people. Mm. I mean, they felt that the responses were in some sense, I mean, it was using just very simple word recognition and triggering things, of, you know, it was, and it was very much a Freudian kind of model mm. too. So if you mentioned your mother, it would say, tell me more about your mother and all those kinds of things. But it was really, it didn't have any actual understanding of what people were doing and yet they mm. were willing to to be quite open and yeah. Yeah. yeah i really see the potential in you know using ai for therapeutic tools for that reason like people would be much more i feel like would be much more open i mean depending if they know what's happening with the data or not do you think people trust algorithms more than they trust people Is it? yes <laughs> they trust algorithms more than i they think trust people, people do well, if you were, if you wanted to, you know, if suppose you had a, you know, you were mildly depressed, for example, and you went, you, you know, you might go and see um, a psychiatrist or a psychologist mm. where, yes. and there's a, there's a whole thing about trust and professionalism and things like that. Whereas yeah. with an algorithm, you just, you know, you might just log onto your computer and Google a few things. And if something came up and said, yeah, I'm uh, an AI psychologist, I can, I can help you. What do you, mm. what do you want? Would you be more... Well, I mean, it's like, it's the same thing. Like I would Google so many different things that I would never say or ask that question to someone in person, right? So no, Google's it's a bit of a contrived example. <laughs> but do, you, do you think it's also like a matter of judgment? Like, you know, an algorithm is not going to pass yeah, exactly. judgment on mm. anything yeah. you say to it because it's sort of this entity that's not really understanding you at that deep level. Yeah. Whilst talking to a human, you feel like, you know, you sort of, you're putting yourself out there yeah. way more. Yeah, yeah exactly. I think that's probably why. And mm. I think, you know, you might, maybe this is somewhat naive, but you'd think that the algorithm is not judging you at all. It's just taking that information and it's mm. giving you answers that's, based on what you're telling it. It's clinical in its... It's also not going to sort of cheat in any way, like sort of be thinking in the back of its mind, oh, oh, oh that's yeah. really, you know, <laughs> that's really funny or... Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that, that has to, in that case, basically we believe that, that the AI isn't intelligent. I mean, at the... At this point, it's not. But maybe in the future, when I don't mm. know what happens, maybe it's 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 going to change. Well, I guess what Eliza shows is it doesn't actually have to be yeah. intelligent for yeah. people to find it interesting. At least mm. whether it was actually very helpful for anyone is another question. And so I think the big conceptual leap would be having something that actually is helpful for someone, as you say, Nina, in your research, like trying to actually help people understand 
their emotions better. Mm-hmm. We mentioned Rosalind Pickard mm. before. Now, she's got a, a spin-off company from the MIT Media Lab called Effectiva. Yes. What do they do? They specialise in AI and emotion, right? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm not sure exactly which what they started with, like which technology they started with, but they basically offer a, quite a few different products, ranging from using kind of like speech and face uh, detection to do kind of emotion categorization and stuff for applications like driving. Like mm-hmm. I guess you need to know if people are like about to fall asleep or something like that. But then they also offer a lot of different things in like the health industry, like. I think one thing that just got released was a, a wristband that detects like the m- moments before you're about to have a seizure for people with epilepsy, which can be mm. super helpful. And also just tracking basically valence and arousal over the day of like, I think children with um, I don't know, various disabilities to, for them to then reflect on their emotions. Um, that's something that they work on. So it's, it's kind of... They all seem like pretty positive applications, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. And as much as, you know, we might disagree with the whole you know, valence arousal being too simplistic or categorizing emotions into discrete categories, you know, not really being realistic. These are, I think there are really interesting applications of effective computing that you can see like the benefits for mm. you know, directly. Mm. It also seemed like they offered services where you could do, do like brow detection. And it's mm. not just like a simple, you're in this emotional category. It's more about mm. facial features, mm. like what are you actually doing? Mm. And mm. that could be, you know, that yeah. could be an API into so many different things yeah, right? yeah. to create yeah. applications based on your facial features. Mm. So, but I, th- I think also a lot of the newer models that are coming out are multimodal. So they're not just looking at your face, they're looking at your speech. So they're not just what you're saying, but how you're saying it, the tone of your voice. They're looking at things like hand movements and gestures, body posture, mm-hmm. all those kinds of things. You know, so often people will sort of slump down when they're, when they're sort of feeling despondent, for example, or sit up. Mm sit up straight when they're really proud about something as well. So there's a lot of data there, but I, I guess it does raise the question of if you're monitoring someone at that level, so you're watching their face, their body, you're listening to their speech, their movements, that's a lot of data that you're collecting about mm-hmm. someone. There's issues of privacy. Uh, there's issues of, you know, some machine learning on that on that kind of data and associating it with something quite intimate, which is your emotional state, your emotional well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, potentially making correlations that don't exist. Yes. Right? Yeah. That's that's the really scary part. It's just because you have the data and you've collected it, you're making these leaps that we don't even have a model for. Yeah. Now, so. We've seen a lot of things recently with face detection. Two examples come to mind. One is, of course, the Chinese social credit system where people are you know, checked before they get on the train. It's largely just a matching thing at the moment, but you could imagine a future scenario where it's more than just matching a person's face, but looking at their current emotion. And if they have, for example, a history of violence and they're detected as being angry, that they get stopped or pulled aside. Like, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, the other example was the school. Uh, yeah, this was also in China where they oh, have a it? complete yeah uh. <laughs> monitoring system to measure whether, you know, uh, the students are happy, whether they seem, like, confused, and they had, like, all these visuals of different emoji and the percentage of, like, (laughs) where, Mm. how many people, how many students are, like, fall into those categories, Mm. which also just seems like... So would you get chastised by the teacher if you weren't happy in the (laughs) class? Is it you're not... I mean, I hope not, but it feels like it's going that way. Mm. Yeah. Again, I mean, it just comes back to AI being put into 
wrong hands and it's not really like just put everywhere right well that it's a solution to everything yeah i mean it does it seems sort of seductively great from a teacher's perspective say if i knew how engaged my students were all the time i could try and make my class yeah this obsession with quantification right we don't know what's going wrong with the students he you know he he or she is not performing well as someone else so Let's measure every bit mm. to see where they differ. Because mm. um, mm, it avoids having to talk to them. <laughs> I guess. And, and it's an easier justification in the t- uh, parent-teacher meeting. <laughs> yeah, you can, bring, you can get a whole right, right. statistical report with plots and things showing Absolutely. your child's engagement across the entire <laughs> curriculum and things, some areas of improvement. And it's not too bad. <laughs> but I mean, what, what, what do you think? Is it a good thing to be sort of surveilled like that all the time, particularly if you're a child too, or is it mm. not a good thing? I or is that too simplistic a, 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 a kind of, you know, binarization of the process? It looks like it has some good things about it, but it could also be used rather badly as well. Mm, I, I think the combination of having an incorrect model or not really up to date with science today, mm. plus the surveillance aspect sounds that sounds pretty dangerous to me. So what what can we do to still encourage this research and and you know trying out applications without it going wrong? Mm. <laughs> what do you think? Is there or is that as we've seen pretty much impossible with AI at the moment? You know, mm. data can get into the wrong hands if it's in a if it's in a company that's privately held and you don't know what's done with it yeah, it could right. be sold yeah who has access to but it I mean, that's the, the issue we all face right mm. getting into this industry mm. do we or this research field why uh, why are we participating in it it's because we think that we can contribute something positive you know or is it better to just not be involved at all if there's some kind of like risk involved oh, i think it's definitely worth being involved um, mm. but it's also understanding the ethics of mm. what you do and where you know, and and also for people using the technology to understand how it's being used and why, mm. and you know, people people you know often seem to be quite willing to give it away because they think, well, it's just me behaving. What difference could it possibly mm. make? Which is fair enough, but it's also, you know, what are the long term ramifications of all this? Particularly a system that's monitoring you all of the time on everything that you do. Anyway, we could have another whole episode on. Ethics and AI, maybe we should do that. We will. <laughs> I'm sure we will. We're supposed to be a creative AI podcast. Yeah. So let's talk about creative AI and emotion rather than the nation states uh, monitoring their citizens. So uh, it's pretty hard to find examples in creative AI of people using effective technologies or effective AI yeah. with some exceptions. So one, one of the things uh, that I came across the other day was a um, – device called solo it's an emotional radio basically it uh, looks at your emotions it looks at you uses image processing techniques looks at your um how you're feeling supposedly and then chooses music from a playlist to suit your emotions what is it successful is it a good idea i it seems like it was a prototype built by a design company um mm. is Wait, it, so the idea is it's like a Amazon Echo type device that sort of sits on the counter, sort of. No, no, it has a, it has a, it's very designly. It has, it's like a clock face, a round clock face with a edge cut off it, and it has a face uh, icon on it, and it makes different expressions while it's looking at you, and then when it's worked out what it thinks emotion you're in, it then goes and plays some music. So it's, it's a, an object that you might have hanging on your wall at home, like you would have your Amazon. 
yep. Echo or whatever, but it's it looks a bit more personalized than that because it's got a face on it to start with. Which I mean, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? That none of the assistants have been given faces. They've been given a very strong vo- vocal personality, but they're not <laughs> they're not manifest into any even sort of cartoon like character. Or mm. anything, even though I mean, that was probably the big mistake with earlier efforts, like you know, Microsoft's Clippy, and <laughs> I think Apple had a promotional video many years ago of an assistant with a bow tie yes. on that you would talk to and. <laughs> And so on, but but yeah, to get this this work, um, I mean, it seems quite seems a nice fun. idea, it seems right? Nice and harmless, harmless, yeah, harmless, yeah, for now. But also kind of creepy if it's just kind of like choosing, always there just looking at you, yeah, and choosing music for you. Well, but you know, if you've got Alexa at home, it's always listening yeah. to you. Or well, that is definitely creepy. <laughs> <laughs> I think so I think it's nice. Yeah, okay. that's something to have. You know, like mm. if it can pick up on your mood and. If you think about the use case, so do you come home, think, oh, what music do I want to listen to? I don't know. And you, you have something decide for you based on how you're feeling. It says, oh, hi, Dilpreet, you're looking a bit down. You've had a hard day at work. Your boss has been giving you grief. I'm going to play some upbeat music. <laughs> do uh, no, see, this is novelty. I'd try it yeah. a couple of times and I'd be like, no, thanks. Yeah. I can pick true. my music myself. Yeah. Yeah. That's the beauty of it, picking your own music to suit your mood. I love doing that. So I don't, I don't know. I wouldn't buy it. Okay. Yeah, so, I would yeah, buy it. I'd try it. Though. I'd try it. <laughs> <laughs> I'd try before you buy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's probably fair enough. Uh, are there any other examples? Nina, tell us a bit about what you're doing because you're working in that space, right? What are you? Yeah. Are you so doing? I've been looking at, at this point, just emotion detection from facial expression um, and trying to link that into generative text from neural networks. So I was quite interested in like generated, generated poetry and just seeing how I can use basically a face uh, emotion input to then like tailor some kind of generated machine poetry in some kind of like interactive interface. The crossover between creative AI and um, effective computing, I think both of them are, you know, respectively quite small and then the crossover is even smaller and people have, there's, def- there's definitely been people who have tried to like combine them in like quite simplistic ways either coming from like creative creative um, AI or creative coding, trying to basically just implement some kind of emotion detection into something like Simon Colton, mm. who we know. Mm, we do. We do. Hello, Simon, if you're listening. <laughs> Hello, Simon. <laughs> he did this uh, quite a few years ago with his painting Fool. Yes, yeah. Yeah, they used basically emotion detection to tailor like the, the way the portrait, painting Fool painted the portrait or the style was painted in. So you see a bit of that around. Mm. But... Uh, yeah, it's a definitely a field that's lacking. And what's the relationship between the emotion that's detected and the poetry that gets generated? Is that a is that a fixed relationship? So, like, if you if it detects that you're happy, does it put on happy text, or is it more nuanced yeah, than that? That's where I'm beginning. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty straightforward at this point. The mapping is straightforward. Yeah, yeah, it's it's basically meant to reflect. It's meant to use language to kind of say something about your emotion that maybe you didn't think about before and allow you to reflect on your emotion. I think it's also about if you know that it, there's some kind of emotion detection going on, you give this interface or computer or whatever it is, like some kind of authority to, you kind of believe that maybe it could be right and you like reflect on that as well. So, Okay, we should wrap up again for today, but maybe just a, a final question is what, what do you think about AI actually understanding people's emotion at a level that might compare to human understanding do you think that's going to be possible sort of infinite timeline yeah um, without putting a time yeah, on it like i don't see why not in terms of sort of if you take you know you're talking to me and i'm sort of looking at you and sort of monitoring you know mm. your 
your tone of voice, your facial features. I don't see a why not a, like why an AI algorithm taking all that input can't make the same decision that I came to. Mm. Um, not that it would understand what to do with that or have a context around that, It'll, but have it be able to distinguish the nuance. I don't see why that's not a possibility. So I guess the question is then, well, what, what would you do with yeah. that information? And I, I mean, that's a very open question. The idea that um, a machine understands you as well as a person at an emotional level seems to be like a big conceptual hurdle, like being beaten at chess, uh, that doesn't worry me. But having a machine that's that actually knows you perhaps better than most people do, is that, I don't know, is that worried? Does that disturb either of you or is no? It doesn't disturb no. me. I, I just, I, I, I mean, I guess philosophically I kind of disagree with it. I don't really think that it's possible just because... I don't know. If what, it's why not? Why? Why isn't it possible philosophically? <laughs> <laughs> just because, I mean, just this is like where my reading has taken me, basically into like emotion theories that uh, say that it's contextual. Basically, it's the society comes up with the rules, um, and together we kind of all agree on them about what, what kind of you know body language or facial expressions mean what, mm. and that's how we we all kind of agree on it, and that's how we know what people are feeling, other emotions that people are feeling. Um, and I mean, t- I mean, I guess theoretically you could create a continuous monitoring of everyone. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, I mean, that, that's, that is one interesting point that you make is how much of emotional behavior and emotion is socially conferred. And if you have mm. machines influencing that as well, mm. would it mean that we actually start only expressing our emotions in those six categories mm. that are recognized that's- by the Google emotion bot? Or yeah. whatever. I think I think under this the, the theory of constructed emotion, I th- really think that it actually could, if uh, effective computing was pervasive in society, it could actually change society the itself and the in- individual emotions people feel. Now I'm even more scared. Yeah, I think it's actually quite scary. <laughs> it's scarier than when I first got into it. For me now, I'm like, oh, this is a. Uh, but is it is it because you're imagining what could be like how that information could be taken and sort of used? against you no, like think, how does like i think more it's just like even if it was used on a personal level not even like talking about surveillance like if basically you're given six or seven or eight options of what something you might be feeling it could totally change the psychology of what you think that you even have the ability to feel or like the concepts that you have accessible to you to then like categorize what you're feeling at any moment it could actually change like it could totally limit if we, if we just stick with this like six category emotion model mm. it could limit the possibilities of what we actually are able to feel, right? Yeah, I Is think that so. Is crazy? No, I don't think that's crazy at all. I think um, there's a there's a huge history of people adapting to technology and that changing them socially. Mm-hmm. And if we're talking about something like the gamut of emotions that are possible to express in a machine, mm. um, and then you have to fall into one of those categories, then... You know, yeah, it could it could mean that you change your behaviour mm. just to fit in with society, which is this hybridization of machine emotional understanding and human emotional understanding. Yeah. Okay, that's a scary way to finish, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> maybe we should end on a lighter note. I, well, maybe we should just point some machine vision cameras at us and see if we're... <laughs> <laughs> How terrified we are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, well, uh, thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks, Dilpreet. Thank you, John. Thanks, Nina. Thank you. And we'll see you in two weeks' time for the next Sensi Lab Creative AI podcast. Thanks for listening. Bye.